Welcome to the Loved Called Gifted podcast. This is your place to come for musings about spirituality, identity and purpose. I'm your host, Catherine Cowell. So for this episode of the Loved Called Gifted podcast, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Charlie. So do you want to introduce yourself, Charlie? Hi, yes, I'm Charlie. I am predominantly a wife and a mum to two boys who are my everything right now. Family is just the most important thing. We were chatting, we meet on a Saturday for a kind of prairie breakfasty thing and on the autumn morning this Saturday we were talking about trees, weren't we, and kind of how trees lose their leaves. Do you want to just talk a bit about what you'd brought to share around that? Well, actually, I hadn't brought anything to share, but I just <laughs> was able to have an opportunity to say something. And I remember how trees have to lose their leaves because if they held on to them through the winter, the amount of water that is in the leaf itself would freeze. And that process of the leaves freezing would actually kill the tree. So the trees lose their leaves so that they can stay alive through the ice and through the winter. That really resonated with me because actually I've known a lot of people and you would be one of them who sometimes get to points where life is in a season of winter really and it feels like things are being stripped away. So I was chatting to someone fairly recently who has been incredibly active in church. So she and her family have been an absolute stalwart of the church that she's part of. And then she went through a season where it felt to her like everything was kind of disappearing. It's like, where is my opportunity for mission? Where is my opportunity to do things for God? Doesn't seem to be here. But actually, at the same time, she'd got really significant things going on at home. So really tricky things going on with her husband, with some of her kids and a huge amount of pressure. And as you were sharing that, it struck me that actually the leaves disappearing from the trees, so that sense of kind of things being stripped back is not a bad thing at all because you kind of need that in order to go through the winter yeah and I think I've experienced that also because my two adopted boys they went through a period where they really really needed a lot of support we were having trouble with school they were having trouble emotionally there were things at home that were difficult and it almost felt to me like there'd been this sort of stripping away of stuff and a lot of the things that I had been doing before it just was not possible to do anymore and a lot of that stuff disappeared but actually it needed to yeah in order to kind of get through that period which really felt like winter but actually I think there was a great deal of God's grace in that and then that struck me that actually your story over the last couple of years has been a bit similar hasn't it yes very similar I was very much a human doing not a human being and I sought my identity prior to 
what we've been through in everything I did. Yeah. So I was a sign language interpreter for the Staffordshire County Council. I was a director of a brand new project, part of the church I went to at St. John's. It was a massive project and I was so excited about it, opening three shops up in Burslem, a place near Stoke-on-Trent and still running. And I was also very much involved in the church I went to. I was on the leadership team and I was just constantly on the go and the kids and my husband were kind of on the back burner because I was so busy just doing, doing, doing. And it took a big wake up call, a kind of crisis in the family for me to realise that I'd got to drop all of it. It wasn't easy to do that because it was, as I say, my identity. I resisted quite a lot. I was almost in denial about what was happening at home for a long while, not acknowledging it. And I had to sort of have somebody point it out to me very clearly that something needed to give and I needed to stop doing as much. So first thing that went was the directorship of the charity. So that was sort of last summer. And then things got worse at home. One of my kids really struggling with school And I realised that I needed to give a lot more of my time to this. And I think from giving up the directorship, I was able to see. So I stopped even going to church. And then by January, I knew I couldn't do work anymore either. I was getting phone call after phone call from school. And I just phoned work one day. I went, I can't do this anymore. I'm not coming in. So they said, oh, we'll have a break. Um which really I should have gone on the sick or something maybe, but I just went with what the boss said and I had this break and eventually we decided to pull my son out of school for his own mental health and I phoned work and said, I'm not coming back. Yeah. And which was a big decision to make and when that is your whole identity to then have to reestablish who I am and what my priorities are, but actually it's the best thing I could have ever done. Yeah. And it's been great to be at home and be with my family and be a human being. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of questions going through my head in response to all of that. I really identify with the school thing and I wonder if it's worth exploring that a bit because I think you are not by any means the only person who's got to the point where school becomes really difficult. And I think... There is something about the way that school views children or appears to. I don't. Th- I think when you speak to individual teachers, then they would absolutely tell you that each child is an individual and we should value everybody for who they are. But actually, that's often not the experience that once that individual teacher is in the midst of an institution and a culture, that's often not the experience that we have, is it? Yeah. And actually, you know, a lot of my former employment was in school so I was very much part of the institution and saw it from a completely different angle as from a parent yeah and it has been quite difficult to accept what happened and I didn't think I would ever end up (laughs) pulling a child out of school but they just couldn't manage it and the school you know we had meetings and they wanted to help and they appeared to want to help and because they weren't prepared to change their system of it was a punitive system and it and it was that that was causing the major major problem and they weren't prepared to be flexible with that 
Yeah, there, there is a theme around being and doing, I think, that will probably run through our conversation quite a lot. And one of my observations is that the way that we try and get children to conform in terms of what they do, they're doing, their behaviour, is all about the behaviour and none of it is about who is the person in the middle of this and what is happening to them. So my boys now have tutors who come into the home because we crashed and burnt at a number of educational establishments for a variety of reasons. Because of their early history, there are lots of things about being in that environment that they really struggled with. And my youngest son in particular, his way of trying to cope with that was to do things that didn't fit with the system and that would get him into trouble. You will have seen the kind of the star chart and they had a they used to have a traffic light system. <laughs> Charlie is grimacing and twitching. But yeah, when he was very small, there was this chart with a sunshine and then there was a sad cloud and they would put the children's names on either the sunshine or the sad cloud. And every single day, my youngest son's name was on the cloud. And it was because they were watching this outward behaviour and they weren't listening to what was going on inside of him. I guess because they've got lots of kids to manage. Yeah, I hear it all the time now. And um, a lot of the groups have joined on Facebook and say how detrimental those reward charts are to children who are struggling. And what struck me was something I read about the children who are actually at the top who are on the sunshine in your case, are living in a state of anxiety because they are terrified that one day the whole class is going to see that their name's going to drop down out of that sunshine. So it's not only damaging and negative for the young people that are on the cloud, but also those high achievers at the top, it's causing them anxiety too. And when I actually read this, and it's something we've used, we use behaviour charts with our kids because that's, you know, what, what you do as a good parent to try and get positive behaviour. And it wasn't and until I read this, I thought how damaging to all kids those behaviour and reward charts are. And they are still used so much. They are. And actually, when children have had a really traumatic early start and they have attachment difficulties, which is kind of the root of... And we did a podcast about attachment. I can't remember what number it was, but there was. And actually, those early difficulties leave children with this kind of internal sense of not having self-worth and feeling really scared about the fact that they don't feel like they fit or they belong. And there are two ways that that manifests itself. So one way is the child who is engaging in lots of attention-seeking behaviour and lots of kind of out there being a bit chaotic. Um, but the other way that it manifests, and, and what you were saying brings this to mind for me, the other way that it manifests is that there are children who daren't put a foot wrong. There are some who are definitely putting feet wrong or making a lot of noise because they want to make sure that they don't lose the attention of the adults in their lives. And that's often children have come from a really chaotic, neglectful or abusive background where you can't predict. It's like, if I make sure that you don't lose sight of me, then I know that you won't stop caring for me. But the other end of the spectrum is those who have come from a background which might have been abusive or neglectful, but in a really predictable way. So it didn't matter what they did, didn't matter how much they were kind of, they acted out. Nobody was going to pay attention. And those people end up being hyper, hyper good. Yeah. And so I know a number of people who will say of their children that they will act up and they won't put a foot wrong. But quite often, they that high sense of anxiety, you've heard about the 
Coke bottle analogy, that they're holding it in and holding it in and holding it in and making sure that in that situation where their name might end up on the cloud, they're not going to put a foot wrong. But the moment they walk through the door where they feel a bit safer, all hell breaks loose because they've been holding in this pressure and it's like somebody's been shaking a Coke bottle all day yeah. and then they've, then they've taken the lid off. Which is kind of what we were getting. Not for those reasons, yeah. for what their life was like, but I think just holding it together all day. When my son got home, he he exploded, but it was getting to the point he couldn't hold it together in school anymore either. So even though it wasn't happening as bad at, at school, that it wasn't causing too much of a disruption, it was causing a, a bit of disruption because obviously there was an issue at school, but what we were getting at home was unbearable. We We couldn't continue living experiencing that day in day out to the point where my other son was having to go and stay at friends and family's house to ensure their safety yeah because the level of stress they're experiencing from school and the level of stress is just just becomes unbearable and and that kind of needing to hold things together it's it, it happens with children with all kinds of different special needs we talk about sort of neurodivergence but if the way that school is set up just doesn't fit with what you need if you're essential who you are if what you need is different then it becomes incredibly difficult yeah yeah and the other thing that that I was thinking was that actually it's really stressful as a parent because you get the sense that your performance as a parent will reflect on who you are and how people see you and the outward behavior of your kids is the way that people will judge you and who you are definitely you just feel that everybody thinks this behavior this outburst is down to poor parenting and I actually remember that within working in the education system you know the young people that were disruptive and behaviours weren't acceptable. A lot of people automatically think it's down to parenting. And I was one of those people, hands up, I thought that too. And it wasn't until I got a child that was struggling to cope and the way they were manifesting things was through bad behaviour, as if it was it's a cry for attention almost that I realised and it's not parenting at all. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of parents get gaslit in those circumstances that it's them that are the problem when they are absolutely struggling to 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 do the very best they can for these kids, but it's still not working and and through no fault of their own. <laughs> and, and they end up, the parents end up, like I know I did, exhausted and burnt out and every phone call... It's like a trigger. Oh, no, what's happening now? And how am I going to be judged for this new thing that we're facing? It's really difficult. Yeah, and it kind of hits really deep, doesn't it? A sense of being shamed, I think. Yeah, the walk of shame when you've been called in because something's happened again. I remember absolutely dreading kind of queuing up outside school when mine were at primary school waiting for them to come out because I would need to stand amongst other parents and I never felt like I fitted you know that I I felt very judged and some of that might have been in my head but some of it wasn't and I remember trying to find um for my oldest son at one point somebody to go for a day out for his birthday somebody from school 
and nobody would. And one of the comments that he made was that one of the other kids had said that their parents had told him not to play with my oldest son because he was the brother of my youngest son. And they'd obviously decided that our family was dodgy in some way. Oh, no, that's heartbreaking. It is really heartbreaking. Yeah. And we didn't get... Um, I mean, thank goodness I didn't have to spend all of my Saturdays at crap kids' parties in soft play areas on one level. So I suppose we were spared that. But on, on the other hand, they never got invitations. You know, it just, it just didn't happen. Yeah. Well, I've had a similar incident, not with parties, but just playing with a group of people. And my youngest son had been out playing with a group of people for a while and everything had been absolutely fabulous. He was really happy to make all these new friends. And then his brother came up one day to play and obviously didn't play the same way as the other kids and was told in no uncertain terms by one of the parents that he wasn't welcome to play with them. And... In the end, neither of them ended up welcome to play with these kids. And it just, you know, and again, felt like it was parents were to blame. And I don't think there was the fact that there was anything wrong with his behaviour. He just was different. My eldest son's different and didn't go along with what everybody else did. And when Perhaps I don't I don't know because I wasn't there, but I think parents were asking them not to him not to do something and well, he if he wanted to do it, he'd do it <laughs> because he's very strong-willed. Yeah, yeah, and doesn't find complying very easy. No, not <laughs> at all. <laughs> and that's not because we haven't tried, but that's just who he is and he's amazing for it and hard work. Yes, yeah. And quite often people will sort of have this view that they simply wouldn't accept the behaviour that they think shouldn't be occurring. Yeah. Um, they would be firmer. Yes. Which always used to make me kind of roll my eyes because I think the first thing that you get out of your novice parenting toolkit is I will be firmer about this. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the first spanner you try. I've had many a conversation on a football line, on a football pitch with other parents. Oh, well, if that was my child, I would, they, you know... I'd do this, that and the other and I'm stood there thinking, good luck with that with mine. <laughs> because the firmer you get, the reaction is like a bomb going off. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't. So you need to find different ways around it. But it takes a while, doesn't it, to kind of find somewhere, that safe space in yourself to be calm enough to be able to sort of bat off like everybody else's opinions about what you ought to be doing. Yeah. And when things like the walk of shame and the moment where the teacher comes out and says, can we just have a word? And you think, oh, no, 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 you can't have a word. I need to run and hide now. So there's something about needing to kind of deal with that internal stuff. Yeah, definitely. Because having kids who behave is a sort of an identity badge, isn't it? Yeah. Children who are successful. Yeah, and everybody wants their children to be successful and doing well and, and getting your good reports and it's lovely when you get that, but it's not all children can conform to the system that they're in and I think that makes it then really hard for some children because they can excel in some areas but that hasn't been found and it's not found in the education system and I found with my 
eldest who had got the most inquisitive love for learning as a little child had that taken away from him by being forced to follow this strict curriculum regime when if he was just left to go and learn the things he wanted to learn and absorb what he wanted to learn I think he would still have that amazing love for learning he still has got it somewhere but it's kind of been beaten out of him and not physically beaten but he's needed to suppress it I suspect so he's put it in a box yeah he's anti-learning because it relates to the place that probably damaged him the most yeah I hadn't realised one of the places that my youngest went to well I did know it had been traumatising for him but the extent of that I realised when we went to a park and we got to this park and he went grey and then he named the school that he'd been at. He said, oh, we came here with such a place. Oh, gosh. And I thought, oh, goodness, that really... I mean, I'd known he needed to come out of there. It wasn't suiting him um, and it wasn't working. But the degree to which his lack of compliance in that space was because of the trauma he was experiencing there. And that was a specialist education setting that was sort of labelled as best in its field. But they had a system, a particularly firm system, that they weren't willing to budge. So it was different from a mainstream system, but it was still a system. And if you didn't fit the box, then they would do all they could to persuade you to get into the box that didn't fit. Mm. And because my son couldn't get in the box, he had a really bad time. Yeah. Yeah, and it rings so true of so many places. I mean, that's definitely my son's experience. He could not comply with the the strict discipline that the school he was at wanted him to follow, and it was da- damaging him. Yeah. and But they weren't prepared to budge for one because they couldn't be seen to be treating one different from everybody else, which is quite sad because we're not all the same. Yeah. There's a lot of talk intermittently, isn't there, about getting children to school and holding parents responsible for children not getting into school. And when you're not managing to get your kids to school, the fact that that is every weekday of every term time, that continual thing of how much do we push this today to get this person in and the system is saying if you don't get your kids to school then the educational welfare reports are made and you could be fined for it and then really helpfully to my children who were struggling to get to school for various very very valid reasons people would be saying to them well your mother could go to prison if you don't go to school yeah it's massive it's a massive schema that we're kind of brainwashed into that we have got to get our kids to school no matter what and I think I was quite lucky with my son when he started refusing because I had a conversation with you and I was looking at other groups on Facebook of parents that were struggling with the same thing and chatting to other friends who their children struggled with getting into school and what I had never realised because when my son first stopped wanting to go to school and was refusing to get out of bed I was very much because of working in the education system well I will take you there in your pyjamas you will be going to school because that's what we do because that's what we have all been taught that's what's ingrained in everyone and if you don't go to school we're going to get fined and we could end up in prison and I remember saying that to my son and you know my husband said it to him you know we will go to prison we will get fined 
But then having those conversations with people who'd been through it and and seeing the fact that actually there's a reason this lad doesn't want to go to school, my son's struggling, and maybe allowing him to not have to go and build up that trust, I think was really key for us. And part of the reason I decided in the end to pull him out of school, obviously we'd got the really difficult stuff happening, but if he was going to carry on refusing, then we were going to get fined. And, you know, there was nothing we could do about it. Yeah. And we didn't want to end up in that position. And we didn't want to blame him for that position either. When you started talking about all the other things that you were doing, so this is the picture, that you've got all of this stuff that we've been talking about going on. And then also what I was hearing in your story about all of the kind of the churchy stuff, you know, all of the missional and we're doing this project and we're doing this and we're doing that, is that not only were you trying to keep up the face of I'm a good parent with children who go to school, but also the I'm a good Christian who's doing good works for God. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it was all about doing and doing and, you know, how can I not be having my my child go to school because if he doesn't go to school how can I do all the things that I need to be doing and so I'd got this image of who I was and it was all about my identity as what I was doing but if I couldn't do that anymore and everything that was falling apart in my life was making it look like I couldn't do that anymore something needed to change and I did actually have some counseling at the time because I was really struggling with everything And I was told to just stop and take a look and just see what was going on and try and find my inner child in all of this, And which I thought was a bit odd at the time. I was like, inner child, you know, that's long gone, inner child. But actually, that's sort of a journey I've been on and finding out who I am as a human being and that my inner child was part of that journey. Mm. So finding out who my inner child was or is, then I've been able to stop worrying about what other people think because I am who I am and it doesn't matter. If people think I'm a bad parent or if I'm not this good Christian doing all the good Christian works, I actually have got to the point, if I'm happy with who I am and I'm doing the best for my family and we are being (laughs) and we are together in that, yeah, we have struggles, we have some really hard days, but it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And that's been really key in my journey this last 12 months. I've been accepting of who I am for who I am and not what I do. Yes. So how did your view of God need to shift in order for you to be able to make that shift in how you see yourself? I think because I was raised Catholic, there was almost this sort of idea of this God who is so unhappy with you and you've got to do all these things to earn salvation almost. And so I kind of think that's where I was heading with trying to do everything and it was just at some point I think through stopping a lot of things and just being and realizing that no matter what I did God loved me anyway so if I never did another thing again and I don't know how I came to that realization but I did I think maybe in the counseling session my counselor had said something it was breaking the old sort of idea of who God is and what God expected of me so that I didn't have to be doing all this stuff and I could just be that changed 
You've not been in Catholic churches for quite a long time, though, have you? No. <laughs> so you've been part of different churches, but not with that particular tradition and have been part of churches that I've been part of, some of them too. Yes. That on the surface would be saying, God loves you unconditionally. Yeah. But there's still been something within that culture or within your interpretation of that culture, which has kept you doing stuff. Yeah, because it's not been Catholic churches where I've been doing lots of stuff. And I don't think they've necessarily enforced that on me to be doing. But I think it's, again, that my identity, I felt I wasn't a good Christian unless I was doing X, Y, and Z, and I was involved in X, Y, and Z. And some of the things I've done, and I look back and I think, why on earth did I ever put myself forward to do that? When my two boys were small, I decided that I was going to have a go at leading the kids' work. <laughs> oh, they only did it about three or four weeks, and I was like, I am not cut out for this at all. But it was that I need to be doing something. I need to, you know, I can't just sit here and do nothing. I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of Mary and Martha, <laughs> you know, instead of just sitting and being and being accepted, I felt I had to be. And it to be accepted by the people there as well, maybe. I don't know. I think maybe it was an insecurity in me. So wanting to be the good Christian within the social context of, of church and the Christians around. Which I wouldn't necessarily done so much at home with groups I was at that weren't Christian. So I don't know why I felt I needed to within the church. I wonder sometimes there's a subtle culture that I'm noticed much more now than I would have done kind of 20 years ago. Um, I don't think I did notice it at all. But there's this thing where quite often you can be in situations where you're listening to sermons and things and people who talk quite passionately, but underneath it is often this sense of this talk or this sermon or this preach is going to encourage you to do better at things. So this is how you can pray more. This is how you can read your Bible more. This is how you can love more. And often the underpinning thing is this sense of you need to do more of that rather than a kind of sense of God loves you as you are and thinks you're great. And from that, all sorts of other stuff might flow. It kind of starts from the being encouraged to do more and to come away from a Sunday fired up to really go for it in your Christian life in the week to come. Yeah, and find your calling. And, you know, I used to look at all these people who, from when I first started at church, who got all those amazing gifts and abilities and ministries and, and really having that desire to want to replicate it in some way, not necessarily do the same thing, but find what my calling in that sense was and I think going to conferences is massive for doing exactly that you come away from a conference all fired up that you want to go and change the world and there was very much an element to that with me and and part of the project that I, I could see that it was an amazing project and I really wanted to be part of it because it was that doing and this is the ministry maybe this is the ministry that God wanted me to do but actually God just wanted me to be me and there's been such a freedom in that of being able to just be Charlie and not have to strive to have this amazing ministry that's going to change the world, but actually just be me and be there for my family. You know, I remember, especially when I was much, much younger, I, was, I wanted to change the world, <laughs> but actually the world didn't need changing. I just needed to 
simmer down a little. Yeah. <laughs> it's not for me to change the world, is it? <laughs> somebody else can do that. I'll leave somebody else to do it. I'm just going to be me. <laughs> and that will change the world. But it will do it in a less stressy kind of way. Sort of something about just being yourself that enables what flows from you to be good rather than kind of full of stress and screwing you up inside. So I've certainly noticed that you've lost a lot of the angst. Yeah. Quite often when we've made a big change, so you're much more at peace now than you were and feeling, as you say, a lot freer. Can you remember what it felt like in that transition? It was difficult. Yeah. It was a really difficult time because it was almost like I'd had the rug pulled out from underneath me, having my job go. And it wasn't that it went. I gave it up and giving up the directorship of the charity and, and giving up going to church. It, I gave it all up, but it still felt like I'd had the rug pulled out from underneath me. Well, it's not like you were in a situation where there was a lot of choice. It was a survival move. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in tears. At the time, I think my son thought it was because of him, but I think it was an element of mourning everything. I didn't know who I was at that point. Everything that I thought I was had gone. So, yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't it was a nice transition period at first at all. I mean, obviously, there was still all the stuff going on at home. So there was an element of the tears were over that as well. But I, I do think it was both. Yeah. It, and it wasn't pleasant. And, it, and and there's still times now that it, the situation's not pleasant, but I don't think I'm mourning anything that I've, I've had to let go of. Um, in fact, I look back and think, how on earth was I managing to juggle so many balls? I, I'm really glad I just let go of them all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely a grieving because... Because parenting, when you get to the point where you need to let things go in order to continue to do that and care for your kids, it is a a loss of quite a lot of stuff, things that you find satisfying, things that are part of your identity in terms of the wider world and losing that is not a, it's not a small thing. So I think that kind of mourning that and grieving it is... yeah. It, it definitely was. It was a definite grieving process. It's not that it's gone. I still have managed to maintain little bits. So I, I kind of do little bits of freelance work now just so I can earn a little bit of money so we're not destitute with me giving up work. But it's I pick and choose now. So I'm, I can still do my sign language, which I love, but I'm not necessarily having to go and do dentist appointments, which I didn't particularly like or... You know, wherever I was sent to with my old job, it's now a case of I can pick up what I want to do and still have that enjoyment factor. But it's not that I've got to do it five days a week, Monday to Friday. Yeah, but there is the having to let go of a paid position and there is something about letting go of the paid position that you could announce if you went on a quiz show. You know, I am Charlie and I am a... Yeah. Some of that stuff yeah. potentially disappears. I almost feel like I've stepped out of the rat race. Yes. It's the difference, isn't it, between having a nine to five job, which is a fairly firm box yeah. around which you're trying to fit the family stuff and the chaos of school and school refusal. And the box is pretty inflexible. And so it's you that ends up bending really quite a lot and getting bent out of shape in the process. 
because you're the only thing that can possibly give because your kid isn't going to give, school isn't going to give, job isn't going to give. And so you end up bending around it. And I think that's a really common experience. Whereas once you've let go of that, having the flexibility to be with your son in the way that he needs that, then the other things slot around that. It is quite inflexible, as you say. So to let go of it all and just hold on to the one thing, which is family, it's been really freeing. And because there's now flexibility, I'm not getting pulled out of shape. Yeah. Not suffering that damage from trying to stay inside that inflexible system. Yes. Yeah. So letting the leaves fall has been really, really important. And I think there has been times in the past where I perhaps haven't let the leaves fall and I should have done because I was trying to hold on to all these things. So prior to letting go, there was a lot of holding on and an element of me dying in that because I was burning out myself. I was unable to do all these things, even though I was trying desperately to and holding on to them and thinking, yeah, I can do this and taking on more than I could chew. And it was that holding on of the leaves. And But what that was doing to me was quite damaging. Yeah. It was a case in the end, this has got to go. This has all got to go. So it was that rug being pulled out from underneath me, leaves dropping. But at least you're not trying to hold the leaves in the season of frost. No. No, I've just got the family, which is the core, which is part of who I said I was when I introduced myself. Yeah. And some of the leaves that have dropped, it's really quite nice to get rid of. The shame of what other people are thinking and that sense of, well, I'm not coming up to the mark in terms of what society regards as a good and successful parent. And I'm not coming up to the mark in terms of what the Christian culture that I've been part of regards as being a good Christian, getting to church every week. I think that's one of the sets of leaves which, if you're somebody of faith, getting to a point where you can't sustain even attendance at a community of faith or a place of worship consistently or even at all, that feels like a heavy loss to people sometimes. And prior to doing it, I would have said there's no chance because that was, again, part of my identity. But actually looking back on the journey, it's probably one of the best things I've done Okay. for me personally. And I don't feel it as a, a massive loss. What I have found is I've met some amazing people that I can go and see for coffee or just spend a bit of time with and have a much deeper relationship and a much more understanding and opportunities to talk about life and not it be a week in, week out thing. How are you? Yeah, fine. And, and almost putting a mask on every week and just going, yeah, I'm fine, pretending that everything's okay when really things aren't. So getting rid of that has helped me in my journey and I'm really thankful for it because it's not that I've lost my faith. I don't go to church. I don't feel I need to go to church at the minute. It's not for everybody. Some people absolutely thrive at church. But for me, spending time with friends like yourself and having more meaningful conversations about life and what we're going through has been more church-like for me, more the Christian community that I need than just turning up week in, week out and putting this face on that everything's okay. That's really been God's grace in the middle of all of this, hasn't it? That at a point when sustaining attendance somewhere has not been possible, God has just brought people and groups into your life that fit. Yeah, and it's enabled me to be a lot more real with people. 
it's only now actually looking back how much I was hiding behind this facade of who I thought people wanted me to be. And I was trying to be that good Christian, be that good mother, be that good co-worker. And now I don't have to be that. I can actually be a friend. And it works both ways. It's a two-way thing now where we can share and be real and be honest and be open. And when you're hurting with those people, you can go and just sob. (laughs) And don't have to say anything or try and make everything okay. You can just sob together if needs be or go and have a glass of wine. It's just quite freeing. It's been really freeing. Yeah. We started off with that concept of being a human being, not a human doing. Yeah. And also to have the space in your family relationships, particularly with your son who's no longer in school, when you're not trying to be something you just haven't got the capacity to be when you're kind of embracing your natural winter season at this point that allows you space to enable him slowly to rediscover who he is when he's not being required to sort of be somebody he's not in the school situation yeah that takes time though doesn't it it's not a quick journey no it's not a quick fix at all i mean it's taken me 50 years to realize it (laughs) hopefully he'll maybe through seeing the changes in me pick up on it sooner but yeah it's not going to be something that happens overnight particularly the age that both my sons are coming into where hormones are kicking in. And I think it's this age where we do pick up a lot of issues with our own image and what do people think of us. You know, teenage years are hard. I wouldn't want to go back to them at all. When we started this conversation, I got in mind a number of different groups of people who might find it helpful. And some of those are people who are walking the same journey of having kids with extra needs who don't fit in the boxes and what that does for you as a parent and kind of how that mangles your own self-image and leaves you with stuff to sort of sort out. And also friends who, for whatever reason, have found that they're no longer fitting in a Christian box in the way that they used to. And actually... God is really faithful and continues to walk with us, even if we're not doing all of the things that we've been taught we need to do or we ought to do. And so if there are Christian spiritual practices that used to fit and don't, that aren't working or contexts where you used to fit in and now you don't, then trusting that leaves disappear for a reason sometimes. Yeah, and not trying to hold on to them. It is the time to let go. And wait for spring where the new growth will come. And it'll come from the essentialness of who you are. There is something about autumn and winter that you can really lean into to enter the the silence of winter, along with all of the log fires and the mulled wine and some coziness. Even though it's cold outside, it's a time to get your best woolly jumpers out and your nice warm scarves and have nice hot spicy soups. You know, there is a real element of warmth and comfort in those dark months that are quite nostalgic. I think it's a real time of remembering all the things that have happened in the past. The nostalgia of smells, of tastes of, and, and memories of childhood. There's so many of them in, the, in this season and they're all positive ones rather than negative. 
Yeah, and the image that I'm getting is that in that wintering season, as we kind of do a spiritual sort of turning inwards and allowing God's love to embrace us, it's different from the seasons when you're kind of out there and doing things and growing and all sorts of new things are occurring. There is a turning in and in that turning in, we meet ourselves and we meet God and we meet God's embrace. And that sense that God envelops us just as your woolly jumper might envelop you in the winter. Yeah. And that nice snuggly scarf wraps around you. Yeah. And new things will be birthed in that time. There are seeds of light in the middle of that. But there are some things, some things that very healthily we don't need to pick up again. Definitely. Don't want to pick up again. No. No, and they're generally about other people's expectations and our own expectations of ourselves. And we can replace that with a new understanding of who we are and how precious we are. So you can end up doing things because they come from who you are and not because of what other people are. Or guilt. Yeah. So thank you very much. That's been... You're welcome. It's been lovely. That's been really good. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Loved Called Gifted podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email lovedcalledgifted at gmail.com. You can find a transcript of this podcast at lovedcalledgifted.com. And that's also the place to go if you're interested in the Loved Called Gifted course, or if you'd like to find out about spiritual direction or coaching. Thank you for listening.